Kia ora everyone, this is Anderson's Odyssey. I'm Jacob Anderson and my guest today is Rochelle Constantine. Rochelle is a Blake leader and a associate professor at the University of Auckland in the Marine Mammal Ecology Group. How are you going, Rochelle? Now, when people think of carbon storage, they often think of trees or they think of the land, but the ocean plays a really important role in carbon storage as well. Um, what are some of the processes or what are some of the um, things that, that happen in the, in the ocean at a large scale that drive a lot of that carbon movement? I think one of the things we um, humans forget, we're very terrestrial beasties and we forget that our planet is 70% ocean for a start. And one of the most important uh, organisms on our planet or collective of organisms are the phytoplankton. So they're the beginning of the food chain in the ocean and they uh, collectively are responsible for more than every second breath you take. So you know, if you try and sort of only take every second breath <laughs> that you would normally take, you don't last for too long. So you have to thank the phytoplankton a lot for that. But importantly, they're actually really important um, in atmospheric oxygen carbon dioxide movement so they they produce oxygen which is what we breathe but they also absorb um, carbon and carbon dioxide store carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and there's about there's about 50 times um, more carbon dioxide stored in the ocean than is actually stored in our atmosphere and that's not just for phyto phytoplankton that's all of the, the marine organisms so the oceans are are really important places um, for lots of reasons uh, that allow our, our planet to function. Um, some recent analysis showed that just a 1% increase in phytoplankton would be the equivalent to over 2 billion mature trees being planted. So that's insane, like there's just 1% increase in phytoplankton. So we often, you know, think about, you know, forests and trees and the terrestrial um, you know, photosynthesizing things being really important, and they are. I'm not. I'm not saying they're not, but but in the oceans, these are. It's very important that these systems function properly. Mm. One. I mean, you, you mentioned this that one percent increase in phytoplankton. How can we, or what are some of the processes, I suppose, that would see a an increase in um, phytoplankton in our oceans because we can't. In the same way we can't go out and plant them like we can plant trees, for example. Yeah, it's it's kind of tricky understanding exactly how these processes work. So, of course, you know, phytoplankton are photosynthesizing. So they're in the very surface, you know, mostly within the top tens of metres of our ocean. You don't find them down in the depths where it's dark. Um, and so they, they need to be near sources of light. But they also rely on macronutrients and micronutrients. So these are you know, basically chemicals within the ocean system that make it function. And so that sort of ocean biogeochemistry is really important and it creates different levels of productivity in different places. So nitrogen is a very important thing in our oceans. So some of the um, nutrients come off land, you know, of, um, erosion of nutrients through rocks or windblown 
um, you know, particle, dust particles, all kinds of different, different things. But, but when you're way far out in the ocean and not near land, you know, those systems can alter a little bit. And so the, the movement or the production of nitrogen within systems is really important. And for um, many organisms, including the phytoplankton, that's kind of the major macronutrient. In some systems, um, micronutrients in particular in our oceans uh, come from uh, iron, things like, um, yeah, the selenium, iron, a number of these. And one of the areas that has been really intensely looked at in recent years is the Southern Ocean. And that area is very low in iron. And iron is really important for phytoplankton productivity. And there's been some quite, um, fascinating work that was undertaken sort of mainly throughout the, the, the 90s and then sort of, you know, early mid 2000s, looking at iron seeding. If we put iron into the ocean, could we stimulate phytoplankton productivity? And if we did that, would that then mean we had a, a way of, you know, um, absorbing more carbon dioxide from the system. So you increase productivity in the sea, which is good because for zooplankton that feed on phytoplankton and then the fish that feed on them and so on and so on. But also as a, a way of dealing with, you know, some of our climate change issues and, and trying to deal with you know, carbon dioxide. One of the things that uh, came out of that is, yeah, sure, we can chuck um, iron in the ocean, in the Southern Ocean, and boom, you know, you get this boom of phytoplankton and then, you know, uh, presumably a, a boom in, in zooplankton that comes immediately after that. But what they also found and have, have worked out, um, colleagues in particular based over in, in Tasmania have worked a lot on this, is looking at the levels of iron in whale poo. Um, and the reason for that is that is that they were really interested in in when we undertook you know just I mean basically wholesale slaughter of our large whales throughout the world's oceans, mostly during the 1900s. Um, what was the role in whales in producing nutrients and having this sort of energy flow within systems in the Southern Ocean? And um, I guess to pair it back to the phytoplankton and the sort of productivity, what they found is when you look at whale poo, it's 10 million times higher in iron than the background water levels in the Southern Ocean. So whale poo is filled with iron. And that they get that from eating krill. So the whales down in the Southern Ocean, the big baleen whales, so the blue whales, humpbacks, fin whales, those, those filter feeding whales they actually consume massive amounts of krill down in the Southern Ocean. And the krill eat phytoplankton, but the, the iron that's in the phytoplankton when it grows gets locked up in the bodies of the krill. And because the whales are eating so much krill, when they poop it out, it actually breaks down the krill carapaces, the bodies of the krill, and then it actually you know, pushes it back out into the system. And that's why the iron levels are so high. So, so this started of, off a whole big conversation about the role of whales in ecosystem functioning. Yeah, so instead of, say, geoengineering the ocean, which would also have other unforeseen risks because we're adding something into the system, effectively what you're saying is whales, the high um, iron in whale poo creates this phytoplankton bloom, which then can draw down carbon and is a far more efficient tool than um than some of these other means that we may have been trying to think about. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's sort of, um, 
nature had it all sorted before we came along and totally ruined it. You know, globally, in excess of three million whales um, were killed, and uh, well, in excess actually, in the Southern Ocean alone, I think it was about two point three million whales were killed in, in sort of the mainly the southern ocean the southern hemisphere but that was primarily down in antarctic waters which is insane you know it was just wholesale slaughter and you can imagine like these large whales they live to be about 60 to 80 years of age you know so in in a very in like by whale life terms in a very short space of time we completely altered um the the system function by basically taking out one of the the biggest, most important contributors to that ecosystem function um, uh, in the Southern Ocean. But, you know, it's, it's not just there, you know, whales seed nitrogen into um, the environment wherever they go, you know, through really high levels of um, nitrogen within their urea, you know, the, the urus, and, and they're always excreting that. You know, so I, well, always, you know, whenever they, they need to wee, basically. Mm. But, you know, so the, it's, it's not just um, iron, which is, you know, a particular feature of the Southern Ocean. Not all oceans are iron limited. You know, it was just more the Southern Ocean system that got studied and paid attention to. But also, I think, you know, it, it stopped us in our tracks and started thinking about the role of whales in general within ocean ecosystems and those sort of... Um, energy flows and, and, you know, locking up of carbon and, um, and actually making systems work properly. Yeah, so, um, so that, you know, has led to some uh, interesting discussions. And in 2010, actually, um, Aaron Pershing and, and colleagues wrote this really cool paper about uh, whales as, um, as a source of, of, of carbon dioxide, uh, sorry, of, of carbon sequestration. You know, so whales are huge. They're, you know, depends on the size, but an average whale is probably about, you know, 30-ish, 30, 40 tons in weight, you know, so they're really big animals and they live very long, a very long time. So within, you know, in their muscles and skeletons and their whole body, their blubber and everything, all of that's carbon, it's all locked up into this giant animal. So every time it feeds, it's taking carbon in and it's using some of that and energy to survive. But when that whale dies, it actually locks up carbon within its body. And so Pershing did this really neat analysis looking at, um, at you know, um, large, whale, large animals, and he focused mostly on the whales, but this also holds for, you know, fish and seals and, you know, big, big animals because they're metabolically quite efficient and they live a long time, so they lock up more carbon over the course of their lives. And he worked out that sort of pre-whaling, there was um, a, a blue whale, you know, the blue whale populations had would, would lock up or export about 72,000 uh, tons of carbon per year within just the blue whales alone and today it's only around about a thousand so you know we've gone by killing all these whales we've taken their role uh, as you know as sort of uh, you know moving energy through systems from really enormous amounts you know 72,000 tons of carbon per year down to about 1,000 is now and this is about 50 years after they've been protected is you know that's insane it's just such, such a massive shift so um there was you know a lot of discussion around this of 
well, what are the role then? What have we lost? What have we done by killing these really big animals in, in, um, in carbon flows within systems? And so just recently, the, um, some economists from the International Monetary Fund basically turned the science, you know, our, our kind of carbon science around whales into money. The, you know, kind of the, the dollar value of that. And they were really interested in how much um, was a whale worth as a, uh, as a, a sequ carbon dioxide sequestration item. And they worked out at about 33 tons of carbon dioxide per, you know, per whale um, sequestered in each whale. So that's 33 tons, which is an insane amount of, <laughs> of carbon dioxide. And, and when they looked, sort of looked back at, you know, um, at the amount of uh, um, carbon that, you know, is locked up in, in forests and, uh, and systems like that, what they found is that, you know, if, if the whale populations were fully recovered, it would be about 1.7 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide per year just in the whales. And that's, I mean, that's just, that's so, <laughs> it's so much, <laughs> you know, compared yeah, to forests. Like, yeah. That's, I mean, that seems like, a, like an amazing um, way to kind of restore um, or, or store carbon. But whales, uh, they grow very slowly and it would take a long time to bring a population back from, uh, you know, to, to have three million whales um, back into the population. So that, that ha has got some limitations doesn't it we can't um we can't kind of do do that overnight like we would plant trees um what 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 but what can we do to or, or what sort of um health are the whales in at the moment are they recovering are they in decline or what does that look like compared to the pre-whaling days well they are recovering by and large you know the most almost all populations of whales are are on the mend um you know i, I like for blue whales for example over 99 percent of the blue whales in the southern hemisphere were exterminated through through whaling um most of the large whale populations got down to easy less than 10 percent of their pre-exploitation numbers um we really, we, you know, we did a really good job at, at killing whales. Um, some of the, the stocks or populations have recovered. Uh, grey whales, are, you know, are sort of along um, the Pacific coast of North America have done really well. Humpback whales on both coasts of Australia have recovered pretty well, uh, large parts of the US. So there are, you know, a number of, of you know, species that are making a comeback. There are some really, still some really worrying signs. For example, blue whales in the southern hemisphere, the estimates are certainly sort of less than 10% of their pre-whaling numbers. They're very slow to recover. Fin whales also quite slow. Um, so it, it's variable in different places. And there's been quite a lot of, you know, discussion about, you know, why we might see that, that difference and why do some populations recover faster than others. And, you know, we don't know whether for the species like blue whales that, um, you know, maybe it's loss of cultural information, maybe it's loss of knowledge about how to find other blue whales and breed. You know, maybe it's genetic, um, the genetic, they've gone through genetic bottleneck, which we know doesn't happen instantly with these long-lived slow breeding species. Sometimes it's a few generations later that you actually will see the genetic bottleneck. 
and that there might be something in that for um, the Antarctic blue whales where for some reason they're just not recovering um, for genetic reasons. The challenge is that these whales are really hard to find and they happen to be in, you know, really the, some of the most inhospitable oceans in the world, you know, the Southern Ocean, you just don't pop there and collect some data and these whales don't aggregate in big numbers like humpback whales are a really great example so humpback whales they swim up to the pacific islands and you can go and see them off tonga or you can see them off you know Samoa or wherever you might go because that's where they go they come together in gregarious large breeding aggregations but for things like blue whales they don't seem to aggregate in a really predictable way um, and where we can just go to this place and find them. And that was what was quite exciting this year. Um, uh, uh, you know, some work in the uh, South Georgia, where they were actually working on um, uh, the right whales, the southern right whales. They found a whole bunch of Antarctic blue whales there. So they're like, whoa, what's this? One thing that we do know is that a lot of the whale populations are really dependent on, um, on prey. So where prey availability is. And this sort of comes back to some of the challenges with climate change. You know, so we, we end up, we end up with some really tangled messes because, you know, in a perfect world, we would stop killing whales. They would migrate to the Southern Ocean, or at least in our neck of the woods, they'd migrate to, you know, these Antarctic waters. There would be lots of krill there and they would feed on it and then they would just migrate north. Or for the Northern Hemisphere, they would migrate to the sort of more Arctic waters or they would feed on um, fishes, big schooling fishes, capelin, hearing things like that, and then they would migrate down to you know, their breeding grounds. And that, you know, that, that works really nice, except for we've overfished a lot of our oceans. A really good example is off the New England coast, um, humpback whales that used to feed a lot on capelin. When the capelin stocks collapsed, they just completely changed um, their prey. So they've shifted to sand lance and they had to totally change their feeding behavior and everything. Uh, North Atlantic right whales, another example, the, um, the really predictable aggregations of copepods that they favored were all in these particular places. They made lots of laws to make sure they didn't get hit by ships, which was, you know, really important and was a major contributor to mortality. And, um, and you know, what happens, you know, a few years ago, where are the whales? They're just not there. And what's happened is the, the, the copepods have moved. Why? Because the climate change impacts on the Arctic systems have been so enormous that the food is not where it should be. And if the food's not where it should be, then these whales aren't where they should be. So in the Southern Ocean, we don't really know, um, you know, it's really hard to get an idea of what the impact of climate change is, but we know it's probably not zero. So how the Southern Ocean system works is in the winterish, you know, winter months, broadly speaking, there's lots of ice, it freezes out, and the phytoplankton sit underneath it, it's dark, so they're not photosynthesizing, and they just sit under the ice and they wait until the light comes around broader summer months, then the ice melts, it warms up, the ice melts, the phytoplankton are released into the water, the zooplankton feed those, the krill, there's this big bloom, that's when the whales arrive, yum, 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 they eat all of that krill. And that's how it works in a perfect system. But how does that go when the freeze-thaw cycle is altered? Now, particularly around the broader Antarctic Peninsula region, the Bellingshausen and Ammonson Sea, which is kind of due south, roughly, of... Um, 
of French Polynesia, you know, sort of that way. So really remote waters there. That area, there's very little ice now, and it's not freezing as much as it used to. And the humpback whales of Oceania, the ones that migrate past New Zealand on their, their way south in particular, um, they, those whales, a lot of them are going down to that Bellingshausen Amundsen Sea region. So when they get there, if there hasn't been enough ice, which means no place for phytoplankton to shelter, maybe there's not enough phytoplankton, which means there's not enough zooplankton. When the whales arrive, is there enough food to feed them all? We don't know this. We, we actually have no idea how the system's going. So it may be that some population recovery is being suppressed because of shifts in productivity cycles. Um, and, and that's, boy, that is a, it's such a tough thing for us to get our heads around as scientists. Um, you've you've done some, what, you've done some work with the humpbacks in, in tracking their um, migration and there's been different, um, that, that some, some of these um, populations have taken different paths and that has had other, uh, impacts on on those populations. Why is that? A, what what's the the reason behind some of that different migration? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, hump, humpback whales, in particular, are really they're a really social whale. So a lots of most large baleen whales are pretty antisocial. They don't really feed together. They don't hang out together much. They might come together and mate and like the brooders whales in the Hauraki Gulf, you virtually never see a bunch of them hanging out. You know, they clearly come together because every now and then there's a, you know, a brooders whale baby, but, but you know, you don't see these kind of big social aggregations like you do with humpbacks. And I, I think um, one of the things that's really important for humpbacks is to be hanging out with other humpback whales. And, and we also know within humpbacks, there's a lot of cultural transmission of information, so transferal of information. So these whales that undertake these very long migrations, the, the calf is born in the, the warmer waters in the tropics, then swims with its mum down to the um, cooler Antarctic waters and then swims back to the tropics. And then usually it's kind of done. After about a year and a half, max two years of hanging out with mum, the whale's on its own. Even though it's not sexually mature, it's, it's kind of does its own thing and it's learned where to go. And we think that for the whales that are coming from Oceania, coming past Roll Island, that they have no land barriers other than Australia, maybe New Zealand, all the way across to Chile, there's nothing. They can go wherever they want to go. And they've learned to swim to this Amundsen, Bellingshausen Sea region for their, um, when they're in a non-reproductive stage of life. So probably a lot of juveniles down there, um, but also uh, no, very few mothers and calves go there. But the mothers with calves go straight down to the Ross Sea region, but they don't go right into the Ross Sea area, which is where you know, New Zealand has its base and we see minke whales and all kinds of things. And they actually stay a reasonable way north of it. Uh, and that's where mums and calves stop. And they feed and there's just, there's no land, there's nothing, there's no ice out there. And they just stop at this spot. Um, my student, Lena Rikula, did a study on, you know, what were the differences in energetics? You know, if you have to swim, because the whales go to the Ammons and Bellingshausen Sea, it's swimming, I think it's about 4,000 kilometres more in some cases than the mums swimming with their calves straight down. And we think that what's happening is mums are slowed down by their calf. She also has to produce energy for her to maintain the swim back to Antarctica, but also feed her calf as well. So the mums probably have, you know, a more 
tight energetic budget and time budget because they have to swim a little bit slower. Whereas the others can go a little bit faster, get to these feeding grounds and find enough prey. So I think that there's this sort of fine balance depending on their phase of life that because south of the South Pacific is just, just big open ocean, they, can, they learn where to go to get whatever um, food that they require, which is pretty cool, you know, because it's, it's huge. I think it, it's something like a 4,000 kilometer expanse between, um, you know, the, the Ross Sea area and then across to the, um, the Ballingshausen Sea area where, where these whales were feeding. And they all originated, you know, well, where we tagged them was at Raoul Island in the Kermadex, this tiny little island. So they know their way around these whales, you know. And I think that's what brings back, you know, sort of thinking about their role in these ecosystems functioning properly. You know, that kind of, um, you know, there's two kind of things is the whale pump and then there's called the whale conveyor belt and the whale pump is when they're feeding and they're they're eating where whatever they're eating they come to the surface to breathe in that we know that they poop they poop at the surface they poop deeper down as well but whatever they're eating all of those nutrients that come with that whale poo all of that nitrogen and carbon and energy that just comes out in their poo sits in that system and it's fed on by all kinds of things lots of things eat whale poo whale poo is just mana from heaven for many many organisms in the sea and and so those whales are kind of moving these nutrients through the system and then when the whales like migrating whales move from the southern ocean and migrate to the tropics they're they, they stop pooing pretty quickly because they've finished feeding. They don't feed once they leave, you know, Southern Ocean. But they are producing nitrogenous waste. They are, you know, urinating. And as they move north, they're, they're seeding this nitrogen as they go north. So the, the role of whales in these well-trodden migration paths, which is, you know, the conveyor belt of energy, or within the system that they're in, you know, that sort of whale pump where their role within that system uh, seeding nutrients into it that in turn produce krill for them that they eat and so on and so on. I mean, these are, they're just really neat things for us, I think, to get our heads around of how um, these systems work so well and how quickly we can really destroy them. So, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic that whale populations will recover. Would we get back to the estimated 5 million or so that we used to have? I, I, I really don't know. I, I mean, maybe in X hundreds of years, but if we don't get our um, our contribution to you know carbon dioxide being released into our atmosphere, I I I don't know how well these whales will do. I think some of them will do well. Those that have plasticity in their behaviour, you know, so those that adapt and will shift where they go and what they feed on and those kinds of things. Humpbacks being quite a good example of that. Brooders whales is another example. But some maybe of the, fixed, it might not be so good. Some of, I, I, I'm not sure if you told me this or somebody else told me, but they have a, a memory where they go back home to breed, don't they? So a whale will only go and breed in the same, I think, is it the Southern Rights or the Humpbacks? They'll only breed in the same harbour where they were born or where they grew up. Is that right? Yeah, um, there's a few different species of whales that do that. Yeah, they have, we call it natal site fidelity. So you return to the place you were born. And we can see that in their genetics. You know, we can see that. And we think that's, it's a learned behavior. 
you know, it's, it's what the whales learn to do. We also know that some whales will bust a move and go somewhere else every now and then as well. But you can see it really strongly in the genetic signatures, um, southern right whales, um, uh, humpback whales being, you know, really good examples of that, where, you know, they, they actually, they, they return to this place that they came from. And that's why, you know, I think when we're thinking about, you know, how do we, how do we protect whales? Just recently, the IUCN, the International Union for Conservation of Nature, which is a, an, an, an UN body, you know, they've actually finally recognised culture as a very important part of whales' um, lives. Um, sperm whales also have a magnificent, rich culture, and they learn a lot. They have a really long period of dependency on their mum, and um, they learn a lot from their mums in that time, and they have unique ways of communicating, um, you know, as do humpbacks, bowhead whales as well. And so it seems for some of the, the really big whales, they have very rich, complex memories and cultural knowledge. And so when we really, um, it's not like if we outfish an area or if there's just, you know, there's no ice and so there's no phytoplankton, there's no krill, for example, that, oh, well, the whales, they're big, they'll just swim somewhere else. They might actually not be able to adapt and do that. So I, I'm, I was really pleased when culture was recognised as a, a really important component in conservation action, you know, and thinking about how we protect animals and why. Um, and for a lot of the great whales, you know, some of the things that are threatening them, for example, um, ship strike, you know, which is a, a huge problem in some parts of the world, uh, um, entanglement still in fishing gear, less and less direct hunting, but in some places, you know, direct hunting. You know, one of the things that I think it's, a, it's an interesting thought experiment to do is if we value whales as carbon sinks, as carbon sequestration mechanisms, um, and, you know, they were sort of valued, that, that IMF analysis I was just talking about, you know, valued each whale at about three and a half million New Zealand dollars per, you know, living whale. Uh, and, uh, you know, which is a lot of money, you know, <laughs> whales worth a lot of money when, when you put it in carbon dioxide terms. But that value shifts of that whale um, as, as the, the price of carbon shifts, right? So, so you know, there was a, an IMF proposal recently of, um, you know, putting a carbon tax of about, you know, 100, um, 100 New Zealand dollars, you know, and that would make whales worth about $8 million each. So much like we do with the trees, you know, if you, you, you plant trees, you lock up a forest, you get some carbon credits or you get some value from that. Perhaps think about whales in those terms. And so maybe um, there's a way of, of going back and looking at places either where direct hunting is occurring where it doesn't need to occur. I'm talking about non-Indigenous takes here, mostly Japan. Mm -hmm. um, they're pretty much the only ones that are still really doing it. But, um, you know, if you could go, if somehow the world through the UN, through the IMF, all these other sort of, you know, big agreements that we have, go to them and say, you know what, every whale that you keep alive is worth this much and let's, let's make it worth your whale. You know, same for shipping industries. Okay, ship, shipping, you worked really hard to not hit and kill whales. You've either rerouted your traffic or slowed down as we've done in the Hauraki Gulf. Um, we're going to reward you for that. You're going to be able to claim a carbon credit because of your action to save whales. And when these whales are worth a lot more than trees, they really are, like the carbon sequestration of them is, is just immense, then, you know, that's an interesting conversation to have, you know. You know, I, I, as, a, as a biologist, I, I, you know, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, you don't really think about whales as money terms, but as a conservation scientist, I'm like, 
Well, if that's what it takes, because we're paying to plant trees, you know, or to protect forests or to, you know, protect native forests, not, you know, not um, chop it down. There's that um, red, um, you know, uh, countries that preserve forests, you know, get sort of benefits for that. And there's mechanisms for doing that. Maybe but, we need to think about that for the oceans, for the big things in the oceans. Yeah, the, I mean, the potential and the, the storage is a pretty amazing kind of way to think about the role that the whales play, yeah. as well as that when they die, they effectively become this smorgasbord <laughs> that turns into, I've seen video, you know, these deep sea submersibles, they show this, this whale carcass and the, the life that the, this sort of barren um, deep sea environment just comes alive and all sorts of other animals appear and start feeding on that. I mean, that, that must have a huge role in, um, in a lot of those deep sea animals. Do, do they depend on, on whales dying or, or do they feed on other things or what does that look like? Yeah, well, that's the thing that's so, you know, this is a whole other conversation again, really. But, you know, not just other whales, you know, living and doing all of their thing and functioning within the system when they're alive. But when they die and they sink to the you know, ocean depths, sure, they sequester the carbon, but they then become a, a, a place where a whole ecosystem sets up for many, many years. And there's been, you can look it up, there's some really cool whale fall um, footage. So, uh, you know, just as you said, look it up on the internet, there's some really neat stuff. And these deep sea submersibles are filming these whales. Some of them they've deliberately sunk and, and actually monitored to see what's going on. And others, you know, they've just come across. But what they've found is there is well in excess of 100 different species of organism, um, you know, large-ish organisms, that's, that's not counting the bacteria and all the microbial things, um, that only live around whale fall, you know, around these decaying whale carcasses. And they are really, they're responsible for actually the breakdown of, the, of this carcass. And so these become places where there's um, crabs and fish and worms and lobsters and eels. There's this really wonderful one of a um, I can't remember what, it's an eel anyway, and it ties itself into a knot. It sort of latches onto the whale and ties its body into a knot and pulls itself off, creates some leverage, and it takes a big chunk out of the whale. It's amazing. Um, my favourite one is this, this worm called Usidax um, uh, mucaflorus, which means bone-eating snot flower. And it's a worm that only lives on whale carcasses and it doesn't even have a digestive system it just absorbs it leaches fat and it, it sort of you know breaks it down through um the sort of beneficial relationship with with bacteria so there's some amazing life you know really big to really small that sort of sets up around around whale fall and like i said it takes decades for that to be all broken down but all of that rich energy and so you can imagine you know, when we killed, you know, over 3 million whales, that was 3 million whales that would have died naturally at whatever stage of their life, you know, as either as a calf or as a, an old whale that would have, you know, historically dropped to the seabed. So, you know, what has our benthic ecosystems lost? You know, what, have, what rich biodiversity in those species that live just off whale fall, what was lost there? And then that nutrient flow that goes on within benthic systems that we know are hugely productive. Um, you know, so there's, there's so much lost when, when we overdo it. You know, when we hunt too much, we take too much out of the oceans, when we alter this, you know, the functioning of oceans. And 
And I think, you know, as you mentioned, you know, with that iron seeding experiment, you know, whilst it was interesting, it was looking at a, a technical solution to a problem we've created, but actually it probably would have had some other, you know, flow on effect. Same with carbon sequestration, you know, in deep, you know, in the deep sea. You know, these are, they're all interesting ideas. And I think we need to discuss all ideas to try and deal with this, you know, this really giant elephant in the room, which is climate change. But, you know, sometimes just going back to nature and actually looking at how systems function and when they, we leave them and they function well, that, you know, how can we be part of this, you know, within it instead of alongside it? Um, and, you know, yeah, some of, some of this work that you know, we've talked about today, I just, it just blows my mind. And I, I love pulling all of these little threads together, of, you know, economics and conservation and just basic whale science and biogeochemistry. And it's just so neat. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's a fantastic way to kind of sum, sum it all up and, and really kind of illustrate the importance of the phytoplankton and the relationship that they have with the whales and how they then store all of this carbon but then also provide all of these amazing ecosystem services and then you know it would be fantastic if we could start to explore the you know the the credit or the blue carbon value of whales and, and i know there is some work in that space for um for kelp and other things but um, i mean that would be an amazing um addition to help um this recovery and help um share the the really amazing um, services that they can provide and get people beyond thinking about trees and land-based solutions and how the ocean can really help us. So thanks so much um, for sharing all of these uh, amazing uh, <laughs> insights, Rochelle. Oh, thanks, Jacob. Yeah, um, thanks for asking me along. It's always nice talking about this stuff. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a fun topic and it's one that's not static. You know, we're always learning more. So yeah. Look back to nature, it often holds the answers that we need, so yeah. Yeah, nature-based solutions, they're definitely a, a really valuable tool. <laughs> exactly. Cool. Yeah. Thanks okay. for tuning in, everyone.